You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. He ran against Donald Trump for president in 2016, and his home state will once again be a key battleground in the 2020 election. Florida Senator Marco Rubio joined the Washington Post to discuss whether Republicans will keep control of the Senate and why he thinks President Trump will be reelected. Let's listen. Good morning. I'm Bob Costa, national political reporter here at the Washington Post. Welcome to Washington Post Live and another special interview for the Texas Tribune Festival. Today, my guest is Senator Marco Rubio, Republican of Florida. He's been someone I've been covering for over a decade since he first ran for the U.S. Senate back in 2010. Senator Rubio, thanks for being here. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. Senator, we're 49 days away from the election. You serve as chairman of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. From that seat, what is the biggest threat to our presidential election in terms of foreign interference? Well, I think first we have to break up foreign interference into two categories. One is meddling in the actual architecture and mechanics of the election. And then the other is sort of the messaging, sort of the psychological operations and warfare designed to get us to divide against each other. Let me just talk about the second one for a moment in terms of putting out messages and the like. That's actually year round. And what their adversaries basically do is they look at all the pre-existing fractures in our society and they just seek to drive it. You know, they think push on that. They use social media. Increasingly, what you're seeing is that they're using, you know, um, they'll create a website somewhere. They may even hire Americans to write on that website and, and put that out there as, as real news content. So, so that's an ongoing challenge. And, and that's year round all the time. I think that's going to continue to be developing over the years to come. And the theory behind it is if you get a country to fight against each other internally, which we already do a pretty good job of by ourselves, but if you drive that, it weakens that country and that society over time. So that's the first part. The second, and, and it's related to the first, is can I mess with the elections? And a lot of people think about it as, can they go in and change votes? That's probably the hardest thing for them to do, at least in a meaningful way to influence the outcome of the election. More concerning to me is a situation where you could get into a county's election system, you could delete a bunch of voters from the voter rolls, and you would do it strategically so that there are, all the voters are from one party. Say you pick a Democratic county, where every where Democratic election officials, but you know Republicans are the ones that when they show up to vote aren't allowed, and and even though they'll get a provisional ballot in most states and ultimately their vote will be counted, this narrative will get out there that Republicans weren't being allowed to vote or vice versa, and then if it's a close election, you know you then use your influence operation to promote the narrative that in some parts of the county, in some parts of the country, in certain counties, partisan election officials. We're preventing Democrats or Republicans or people from a certain racial or ethnic makeup from voting. All of that designed to create chaos and questions about the legitimacy of the election. And that would be their dream. I mean, that would be the, 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 that would be the biggest achievement that any adversary has ever mm-hmm. uh, scored against us in an election cycle is to bring us to the point where people honestly believe, half the country believes that the person who was going to be sworn in was not validly and legitimately elected. It's a grave threat to our republic. And uh, it's, you know, the way I tell people is uh, think about 2010, the 2000 election, you know, but on steroids and, and um, you know, 50 times worse than that, breaking out in multiple places. Um, and it won't be about hanging chads. It'll be about whether someone was actually cheating on purpose. So it's, it's a deep concern. And there are multiple adversaries who have the capability to do it. 
and at least three who have the intent to do it to some level. You mentioned fake websites and fake accounts being created. Facebook recently removed some of those things that were created by Russian operatives. What new can you share in this final lap of the campaign about what Russia is up to in terms of meddling? Well, I think it's evolved beyond that and it's evolved beyond Russia. It's not just about some fake account where it's a bot that has you know, a name on a, and a Facebook account. I'm talking about you create a website, right? You create a, some news agency of some sort on the, on, on the internet and it really is promoted and sponsored by a state. A state. And then you hire some Americans who wittingly or unwittingly use it to write up stories that look like news reports. And then you get people to organically spread it online as real news and, uh, and that spread. So I think that, that is, you know, that's, that's one of the challenges that we keep all of us need to be aware of is just because it looks like a news organization doesn't necessarily become one. But, but you know, we've reached a point now where it's very difficult to distinguish. And I'll be frank, and with all due respect, a lot of Americans already question many of the mainstream outlets. They view them as places where promote narratives, not places that promote news stories. So it's this huge uh, muddle, you know, where people are naturally drawn to reports, to news, to stories that further their pre-existing notions and, 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 and that affirm your pre-existing beliefs become attractive for people to read articles, no matter what, even if it's a source you've never heard of, to read articles that confirm your pre-existing bias on politics. So again, that's an ongoing threat, but, but it's one that I think that, that we're gonna see is sort of a difference from what we've seen in the past. Is the Russian government stoking racial division at this time on social media? Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt that beyond Russia, Iran, China, uh, particularly Iran and Russia in this case, um, are constantly in search of um, what are fractures? What are things that get Americans to fight against each other? Because it helps them on two fronts, right? It helps them by weakening us internally. They, they figure that the more we're at each other's throat in this country, the less capable we are of, of governance uh, internally or around the world. But it also helps Russia and to some extent Iran domestically, that, that where they, they say, these are the people that are lecturing us about democracy and freedom. They're chaos. They're, they're, they're destroying each other. Uh, this is what so-called democracy, at least their version of it, Western version of it, looks like. So it's a twofer. You know, it helps them by weakening us, and that helps them geopolitically, but it also helps them domestically by going to people and saying, this is our system of government is better than the American system because look what's happening over there. They have riots. They, have, they are incapable of doing anything. They're fighting with each other all the time. And so th there's no doubt that if there's anything that's deeply divisive in America, they don't create it, but they will drive it. They will do everything they can to drive it. Beyond Russia, you've mentioned China and Iran. We've done a lot of coverage of Russian interference, some on Chinese interference. Can you share any specifics to help us learn more about the extent of Chinese interference in the election? Well, I think when it comes to China, I would look at their tactics and their goals are a little different. China's goal ultimately, I mean, look, I think I don't have any doubt in my mind that China doesn't want Donald Trump to be reelected. I think they measure that against a concern that if their involvement is revealed, they will, um, th that, that'll be counterproductive for them. But ultimately, China's approach to this, and it's not new. I mean, they've lobbied for years using, for example, American corporations who have big business interests in China. They unleash them on the American political process, but, and they use leverage too, but 
in that regard. But but the but the Chinese goal ultimately is to try to influence American policy towards China's preferred position, and and that could eventually extend to going after individual candidates in an election. And it takes all sorts of form, you know, from punishing a congressional district that with with trade measures. You know, all the way to the, they, they have the capability of doing everything Russia does and more so. They have hack and leak capabilities. I mean, you could foresee them one day using that against individuals who they view as China hardliners and what have you. And so they certainly have the ability to do it. And, they, and, uh, and it's just a question of and, and we really wouldn't see the intent to do it probably until after it's been done. But they have the capability to do everything Russia does. They have more capability than Russia in many cases. They certainly have more capabilities than Iran. And it's just a question of deciding how far they want to go and what, the, because I, I do think they're, not that they're more measured, uh, but because they worry more, I think, about backlash if their hand is revealed, they can be more cautious. But if they're aggressive, we probably wouldn't know about it until after the fact. Senator Rubio, I've been reading many of your recent speeches, and there's a common refrain, this phrase, common good capitalism. If you took that phrase and applied it to your work as uh, chairman of the Intelligence Committee, you do support a free market, but should social media companies like Facebook be more regulated with all of these threats from abroad? Well, that's a great question because it's a new question. I mean, are they a publisher or are they a content site? I, I think they have, and that's a good question. I think that the, here's the problem with it and here's the complexity that it raises. What is the fine line between foreign interference and narratives on social media that are domestic, but that may not be true. I mean, the truth of the matter is that as an American, the First Amendment does give you the right to say things that, that are not true. Now, obviously, there are limits to that. If it's going to cause a panic or cause people to hurt each other, the, the, you can't, uh, the, the proverbial screaming fire in a crowded uh, a movie house or theater. But, uh, but that said, I mean, the problem now becomes when they start going after the speech of political figures because they don't agree with their political narrative, th th then it gets complicated. So it's a tough issue to talk about. I certainly think that um, eventually it's an issue we'll have to grapple with. Um, I, my view of it is that for the most part, they have tried to be aggressive about going after it, some more than others, particularly Facebook has been more aggressive about identifying you know, foreign sources of, of false information and trying to eliminate them from those platforms. Whether regulation uh, will make it closer is something that I'm always cautious about because I'm not sure that in the end we can define or closely regulate uh, how that content is dealt with. I would much prefer to enter into a collaborative compact with them that clearly delineates the difference between domestic political speech and foreign efforts to interfere or spread divisive propaganda within our country. There's, I don't have a, this is a 21st century issue of first impression and a tough one to, to work through. I do think, however, that if social media companies are going to get into the business of being publishers, where they're going to edit out information they want in versus not in, then they should be treated as a publisher, including for purposes of liability. And um, so it's something we're going to have to grapple with. I don't, I don't have all the answers on it, but, but I certainly recognize the problem. And I think we're making some headway on, on some fronts. You brought up just now the challenges on the domestic front, which are happening in your own state. This QAnon conspiracy theory, I was reading an article the other day, Eduardo Gamera, a pollster at Florida International University in your state, said the Latino community in Florida is dealing with a, quote, onslaught 
of issues related to this QAnon conspiracy that's spreading around Florida. Are you alarmed about that inside your state and more broadly in the U.S.? Well, I'd say two things. The first is I don't think that those conspiracy theories have anything to do with the outcome. In essence, in many cases, the things that are being promoted out there are all they are doing is, is as I said a few minutes ago, is they are reaffirming people's pre-existing positions on politics. As far as conspiracies are concerned, and, and this one in particular, yes, it's ridiculous, it's stupid to some extent, very dangerous if it leads. You know, when you, when, you know, one thing is to see these things out there and take it for what it is. Another is you have someone who already has some challenges and then sees this stuff out there and decides to take action if somebody could get hurt. So that part about it concerns me very much. But I think my deeper concern is that we are a society and a country in which people are vulnerable to this sort of thing. And at, at the core of every conspiracy theories is, is fear, is, is the fear uh, that, is, fear is what drives it. And so that, that we've reached this point of fear and insecurity in our country where people are likelier to believe some ridiculous conspiracy theory than they are what they see reported or what their leaders tell us really is a warning to both leaders and to those who report the news about how important it is that they do everything possible to build up and protect and secure the credibility both for those of us in public service and those of us who report on our work because in the absence of it you do leave a section of our uh, of our population vulnerable to what could in some cases be very dangerous in some cases stupid but in many other cases, very dangerous conspiracy theories that could lead an already deranged person to take violent action against someone because they believe that person is a pedophile or is running a child sex ring or something along those lines. Senator Rubio, one more question here on election security. Uh, you have seen this complaint, a whistleblower complaint from a senior DHS official uh, saying that in short, uh, he was pressured by the White House, by DHS, to stop providing uh, intelligence analysis on the threat of Russian interference. You're here in this interview today having a candid conversation about interference. A as chairman of the Intelligence Committee, have you ever heard about the White House or Acting Secretary Wolf at DHS pressuring officials or analysts to not say certain things on Russian interference? No. I haven't, and, and I haven't seen it in the reporting either. In essence, uh, I, I, everything I've seen and all the work done by all of our agencies has been pretty straightforward um, and to the point on all of these things, including the public disclosures by Mr. Evanina and others uh, who have been, you know, they've identified by name and sanctioned an individual in Ukraine behind these sort of Russian efforts. That said, you know, there is a process in the law for how a whistleblower complaint is handled. It's referred. When it's revealed to Congress, the committee who has jurisdiction, in this case ours, because of an intelligence matter, we have a process for handling it. So we, we've already begun that process. As I've said, we will handle it the way we will handle any uh, whistleblower complaint that comes forward. You know, we're going to take it seriously. We're going to run it by the book. And you know, our staff is already working on it. And, and we'll get to the end conclusion on it when uh, after we've done that work. And um, so we'll treat any whistleblower complaint that way. And that process has already begun. Let's turn back to this tension between your free market conservatism that shaped the early part of your career and still does to some extent, and your new focus on China. When you speak about this idea of common good capitalism and you look at the pandemic, should the U.S. 
be doing more to ask pharmaceutical companies and PPE manufacturers to produce goods and products in the United States? Yeah, so first of all, I think the fundamental question is, why do we have a market and an economy? Is the purpose of our country and our people to serve the market and the economy? Or is the purpose of the economy and the market to serve people? And I think the answer is self-obvious, right? I mean, we, the, the economy is the means, the ends are the well-being of our country. I'm a supporter of free enterprise and capitalism because I believe it is the best system to deliver the best results for our people and for our country and for the common good of our nation. That said, I recognize that the free market, one of the things I love about free enterprise is that it will always reach the most efficient outcome. It will allocate capital to the most efficient use. And oftentimes that's of great benefit to the United States of America. Every now and then it is not. It is not in the best interest of our country for the, the, the most efficient use of capital is to make pharmaceuticals in China or to make certain manufacturing, have certain manufacturing happening overseas. But that's not always in the best interest of the United States of America. It's not in our best interest to depend on China or any other country, for that matter, for an overwhelming percentage of the active pharmaceutical ingredients in our generic medicines or in personal protective equipment. And I would extend that. It's not in our best interest to depend on China for a significant percentage of our rare earth minerals that we need for technology or our manufacturing and, and installation capabilities in telecommunications and in 5G. And so in those instances in which the most efficient outcome is not in the best interest of our country, that is where government has an obligation, in my view, to create incentives for, for the private market and for free enterprise to do that activity within the United States. And sometimes that best interest is because of national security. Sometimes that best interest is because the jobs that that industry creates are the kinds of jobs that allow people to raise a family and, and have strong communities that they're a part of. And that's good for the country too. But Senator Rubio, let's say you have these tax breaks or incentives for companies, pharmaceutical companies to stay in the United States. And uh, a working American says, why do these companies get enormous tax breaks now to stay in the United States? And my small business doesn't get those same kind of uh, basement level tax breaks. Well, again, it's not necessarily geared towards a large company. For example, I mean, one of the things that we've tried to do through my chairmanship and the Small Business Committee is find ways for more of our SBA programs to be about making it possible for small, smaller and new companies to enter that space and create competition. But I would argue those incentives are already in place. Our laws already incentivize large businesses to do things. We have for example, incentivize them to move manufacturing overseas and then ship things back into the United States through free trade agreements uh, at very low prices. So make goods at it for, for less somewhere else and then send them into the United States for sale. So we already have incentives and I'm just saying the incentives are the wrong ones. If we're going to incentivize behavior, it should be behavior that's good for Americans and, and behavior that's good for American jobs to be created because that's what's gonna help our country be stronger and our communities be stronger. But I absolutely believe that there's a role to play, for example, by modernizing, as I've tried to do and we're trying to do through the reauthorization of the Small Business Administration into a 21st century agency that, that tries to uh, create a pathway to help smaller and new companies enter those spaces where they can provide either as the primary uh, manufacturer, the a primary company, or as a subcontractor to the larger companies involved in that field. Senator Rubio, 
you've made China a real concentration. The U.S. ambassador to China, Terry Branstad, someone you've known from your own political travels to Iowa over the years, he's stepping down. Who should be the next ambassador? And should it be a hardliner on China or someone who's more agreeable with the uh, Chinese Communist Party? Well, I'll tell you who it's not going to be. It's not going to be me. <laughs> I can't tell you China. But, uh, no, all, all kidding aside about that, um, that's a tough assignment, but a very, very important one. Look, I'm not anti-China. That's the point. I'm not even considering myself a hardliner. I'm a realist. China is a rich and powerful country. It will be a rich and powerful country for the rest of my lifetime, my kids' lifetime, and my grandkids that don't even exist lifetime. That's the reality. The 21st century is going to be defined by the relationship between the United States and China. And it will either be a relationship of conflict, even potential military conflict, or it will be a balanced relationship between two great powers. I want the latter. That's not the direction we're headed right now. We made a decision in this country a long time ago that we thought that once China got rich and prosperous, that they would become more democratic and would adhere to fairness and rule of law and international relations and international commerce. That has not worked out that way. It was a terrible mistake. That needs to now be rebalanced. We've allowed them through our own means to deindustrialize us. We came up with this notion that we would be the place that innovates and they would be the place that builds. And we forgot that eventually the place that makes things is also the place that innovates them in the long term. We need to be able to be a place that does both. So it's an important moment for a rebalancing in this relationship. Um, we're almost too late to it. And if it feels like overly aggressive, it's because we are trying to make up for 15, 20 years of mistakes all at once. But this work of, of rebalancing the relationship with China is not the work of one administration or one Congress. It's the work of a generation. This is going to take 20 or 30 years to get right. But we're, I believe, beginning to head in the right direction on it. But since this is a focus for you, is there any name or one or two names you'd recommend no, to the I White don't. House? I don't right now. I mean, I'm, maybe I'll come up with one eventually. But I, I hope it'll be someone that has this sort of view in mind. You know, I think in China, there's this view that we're trying to hold them back. Um, that, that's not the goal um, at all. I mean, it's not about holding China back. It's about ensuring that their rise does not come at our expense, particularly self-inflicted expense. In essence, if China's rise necessarily means the destruction of America's industrial base and manufacturing base and millions of Americans left in low-paying jobs in communities that are hollowed out, that, that's, that's not something we can accept. I think China's rise has to be one that does not come at our expense. Ideally, you want to reach the situation where you do have two great powers in China and the United States who have a balanced working relationship. Um, but that's not where we are today. And it's going to take some time to get to that point. And that's not the direction we were headed uh, up until very recently. And hopefully we can turn that around. What about holding them to account? In the Bob Woodward book, Rage, there are numerous sections about how Michael Pottinger, the deputy national security advisor, uh, Dr. Redfield at the CDC, were raising red flag after red flag about China not sharing full information with the U.S. government. Yes, President Trump took some action on flights, but did President Trump do enough to address China early on with the pandemic? Well, if you recall, when he implemented the, the travel ban, uh, he was immediately accused of, by Joe Biden and others of, of xenophobia and criticized for doing that. I thought that was the right move. Um, look, I'm not telling you it's easy. This is a co complex geopolitical situation where uh, there, it's a broad relationship with China that, that has implications uh, that are too extensive to cover in even one interview. 
That said, um, I think they've been pretty aggressive about it in hindsight. I think early on it would have been important to sort of demand. Uh, and the, what I would have preferred to see is that early on it would have been said would have been said that there's this virus. We have no idea the extent that it's spreading. We have no notion of uh, they're not sharing information about the, the, the viral markers that will allow researchers to begin to work on it. There's no doubt that, like any totalitarian regime, the default position of the Chinese government is to try to cover up, protect their image. Also true of totalitarian regimes is that bad news is not rewarded. You are not rewarded for being the mayor or the local official that goes to Beijing and warns about this outbreak. There's no reward for that built into the system. And the result is that the world has paid a price for it. You know, China actively told they, they bully countries around the world to not implement their own travel bans. They threaten them. And as a result, we know that infected people got on airplanes and returned after the Chinese New Year to countries all over the world and helped spread that pandemic. They've, they've already been held to account for that by the reputational damage they've suffered all over the world and by the rebalancing that many countries are now considering in terms of their supply chains and their relationships with China. Would I have liked to see more aggressive action on that in January, February? Absolutely. But I also recognize two things. The president would have been criticized for it, although that's the price of, of leadership. And I also don't think it takes away from the things they've done right, like mobilizing our industrial base to wipe out what at the time was a very severe concern about a shortage, for example, of ventilators. We didn't have enough. And the president was able to rally the private sector to create a ventilator surplus now in this country that's actually allowed us to share those with other countries. Senator, you mentioned you're also chairman of the Small Business Committee. Uh, we have a few minutes left here, cover a few topics quickly. The government shutdown looms in a couple of weeks unless a bill is, is figured out. Does that looming government shutdown mean a stimulus relief package is perhaps more likely now a bipartisan bill because Congress wants to get something done on all these spending fronts? I hope so. I'm surprised, frankly. I mean, maybe I'm too optimistic, but I honestly thought that if anything could sort of break the fever in this town of this unquenchable thirst for political power and ideological purity, it would be a pandemic. And for a while in April, it did. But now we've seen it return. And frankly, I mean, I think no one here is blameless. I think on my side of the aisle, there are a few who sort of pursue ideological purity at the expense of the reality of what we're facing. There is no pure free market response to the situation before us where you are basically telling businesses not to operate. Uh, an economy can't recover if you're telling businesses they can't operate and or telling people that they can't frequent those businesses. By the same token, I think Democrat leadership has made a decision in Congress, the leaders in Congress, that they're better off doing nothing because things will get bad. The president will be blamed for it and it'll help them in November. Uh, that's the that's the disease that's inflicted American politics now for the better part of 20 years. And uh, I hope that that breaks momentarily, at least, so we can keep the government funded and we can find a way to do something. Look, there's no way we're going to do $3 trillion, but we have to do something. And I hope that we can realize that our country desperately needs us to act and to do something. And I think there's a way forward that allows both sides to get a lot of what they want, but not everything they want. And the sooner we accept that and move forward on it, the better off the country is going to be. And I hope it can happen here over the next couple of weeks. Uh, we certainly are ready to go on PPP. Recent polls, senators show your state, Florida, neck and neck between Vice President Biden and President Trump. How concerned should Republicans be at this point about Florida? As concerned as Democrats are, because it's a close race, right? And either side can win. We know our state's a competitive state. It's a state 
Barack Obama won twice, and then Donald Trump came and won, where in a wave election uh, in which uh, several seats in Congress and in the state legislature flipped to the Democratic side, but we won race, very close races for governor and for U.S. Senate as Republicans. So I think the race in Florida is becoming what it was always going to be, a one to one and a half point race down the stretch between two candidates. If you put anyone on the ballot with a D or an R next to their name, they're guaranteed 47% of the vote. And the fight is over sort of the, the, the remaining percentages. And a lot of that has to do with turnout and enthusiasm as well. So I ultimately think the president will win Florida for a variety of different reasons. But it's going to be a very close race. And we may not know right away uh, who the winner is. What's the one region in Florida or the city or suburb that really matters right now? I don't think there's a region that doesn't matter, to be honest with you. I mean, that's kind of a, maybe not the answer you wanted, but whether it's a Repu Republican stronghold in Northwest Florida, the turnout has to be high. Clearly in Miami-Dade County, for example, and in South Florida, Democrats are gonna win, but can they run up big enough margin? People talk about the I-4 corridor, it only continues to grow in importance, that region that stretches from Daytona Beach all the way down through the Orlando Central Florida area and then Tampa. And, and then obviously Southwest Florida is, particularly important. Again, it's a strong Republican voting area, but if there's any sort of drop off in either turnout or enthusiasm, it would be costly for a Republican there. So they're really, it, it's such, when you come down to a one to a one and a half point race, there's no region in the country where just a small adjustment in one direction or another could influence the outcome of the race. So they're all very important. And honestly, the state is really like not just the multiple media markets, but but uh, even within those media markets, you have Spanish language markets as, as well um, that have to be targeted. And even among Spanish speaking audiences, you have people who came from Colombia, from Venezuela, from Nicaragua. You have American citizens who have moved here from Puerto Rico. You have Cuban Americans, some who came 40 years ago, some who came 40 months ago, and they may vote, uh, or, you know, vote differently. So um, th there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. Senator Rubio, we have time for one more question. I've been reporting on your political career for some time and covered your presidential campaign. When you look at your recent speeches, your work in the Senate, it, it, it screams to me in a political sense that you're thinking about something down the line, perhaps jumping back into the presidential uh, field uh, in 2024. How seriously at this time are you thinking about a future presidential race? Is that door open? Well, I think we have to get through this election. Look, I've run for president before, so clearly that's an office that, that in the past I've thought about serving in, put a lot of time into running for president once, and it was a very rewarding experience, although the outcome was not what I wanted it to be. Um, but I've really enjoyed my, I mean, I can, I, I say this with, you know, all, all modesty possible, but over the last four and a half to five years, what we've been able to achieve here, I think stands up with the record of anyone who's ever served Florida in terms of getting things done. I've enjoyed that tremendously. So it's a, it'll be a decision I have to weigh, you know, and, and um, you know, do I want to continue to serve in the Senate or is there an opportunity there for me to serve in a different position? And it's always a legitimate choice to at some point decide, you know, I've, I've done the, all I can in the service of this country in a political office, and it's time for me to find something else to do in my life. So. That's a bridge I'll have to cross like everybody does every six years or every four years, depending on what position you're in. And when that moment comes, I'll make that decision. And, and the other variable here, of course, is my family's older. Um, you know, so uh, my kids are older, they have different needs and, and from their father. And so that'll be always a part of that. In fact, probably the single most important 
determinant in the decision moving forward. So I'll see when I get there. But I can tell you, I've, I've, I enjoy very much being in public office because I wake up every morning, I can see something in the world that I think needs to be addressed. And I'm in a place where I can actually try to do something about it. I've enjoyed doing that a lot. And, and I hope to have the opportunity to continue to do it in some form or fashion here down the road. But um, not trying to be evasive. I just don't know where I'm going to be a year from now in my thinking with all those other factors that we've just discussed. But we got to get through November first. Well, it sounds like the door is open to a presidential run, but I, I take your points there. A lot can happen in the next few months and years. Senator Rubio, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks so much. Appreciate your time. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.